Because of the coronavirus epidemic and to respect social distancing guidelines, this episode of Civil Politics was recorded remotely over Zoom. Good evening and welcome to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow, your ever-so-humble host, and I'm uh, joined as usual tonight by uh, harried executive producer John Roberts and uh, frazzled Republican Sue Timberlake. That, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no lies detected. Um. <laughs> and we're fortunate enough to have with us a guest tonight, uh, Christina Mensik for the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. And we're going to be talking about, uh, well, the work their organization does, and in particular, their interest in voting rights for people who are in prison in this country, which is uh, one of the many ways in which we are failing to live up to our noble ideals as the United States of America. Um, and if you're listening overseas, yes, some of us actually do notice that we don't do that. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, I do have to mention a few things. First, as always, we love to hear from our listeners, and you can get in touch with us in a few different ways. Email is civilpoliticsradio at valleyfreeradio.org. Uh, Facebook.com slash civilpoliticsradio is our community there. At civilpoliticsfm is how you tweet at us. And we do have our own website, which is quite simply civilpoliticsradio.com with recordings of the sh episodes of the show, supplementals, links to other good stuff, and, you know, whatever other things we think might be of interest that we put up there. Um and also, uh, tonight is a, a, a special uh, night. It's our uh, spring fun drive now. <clears throat> As we've mentioned from time to time here on the show, uh, Valley Free Radio is a small, nonprofit, all-volunteer organization. We're community-based radio. Um, we get a few programs that are syndicated from other, you know, small sources or the Pacifica Network or whatever, but a lot of the shows that we do are by people here in the Valley uh, pursuing their particular interests. And you get a, an eclectic range of, for example, uh, music with things like uh, Reggae Down and OK Asia and uh, even video game music from Press Start to Continue and other uh, stuff like that. Who does that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, that's that's something very interesting about Press Start. Press Start to continue uh, started um, in earnest on Valley Free Radio in 2013. We just had uh, th it's my show. It's it's another show I do. Uh, yeah. We just passed our eighth um, eighth year uh, um, on Valley Free Radio. Yeah, my eighth anniversary um, was on was a month ago. Um, Mazel the, Thank you. Uh, and. We've had a few shows nice. that start on Valley nice. Free Radio and then get syndicated, which Press Start is. Uh, Press Start uh, to continue airs in Chicago and Nova Scotia, uh, and in um, and on podcasts, obviously. But it's a the best thing. One of the best things about community radio is that it's such a uh, a fertile ground for new ideas, new radio, new shows, new content that people can create. And a lot of people from from VFR and from other places have uh, gone on to do 
like larger things and and contributed more to a wider audience. So uh, community radio is incredibly important um, for experimentation in content creation. And for voices that don't get to talk very much to at least begin to eke out a space for themselves in our crowded media discourse. Exactly. Um, yeah. And as I've mentioned, we're all volunteers here and the station, uh, we run on a very modest budget. So your contributions, even, you know, a few bucks is going to actually help us. So you can send us money in a few different ways. First off, uh, and the best way is to go to uh, www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Our donation page is set up so that you can send us money through PayPal. It's uh, uh, confidential and easy and safe. And uh, you can also flag the show or shows you want to particularly support or that are inspiring you to donate. Uh, and if you do, I hope you'll mention that uh, civil politics, perhaps, maybe? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. Um, or just me, Michael Dow. That'd be fine, too. <laughs> I, I I need the I need the approval. Anyway, uh, so civil politics. Uh, sorry, not civil politics radio. Sorry, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Uh, uh, because of the coronavirus, I don't know if anybody's in the studio right now. Uh, so normally I'd I'd say call the studio line as well, but I think it's best just to to keep socially distant because uh, even with vaccinations, it's still uh, we're far from out of the woods. So once again, that's uh www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. So if you have, uh, if you, if you can't use, uh, use, um, the donation system on the website, if you really want to send like a check or something, then click. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Click contact on the website. Yes. <laughs> click, well, click contact we on address. the website. Um, and, uh, and get into, and we can get you in touch with, like with someone that can that might be able to help you with the, <laughs> mail, with mail. the check. But um, the best way is valleyfearradio.org. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, yeah. Our our address is on the website. You can mail us a check and make it out to Valley Free Radio and uh, the uh, mail it to one forty. And we will thank you very Pine much Street? for your uh, contribution. There you go. Um, I mean. I'm, we're in, in Florence, but whatever. The, the info is on the website, uh, valleyfreeradio.org. So, um, yeah, well, uh, all right. So I, I definitely wanted to make sure that we did that because, you know, we got to keep the lights on. Um, but uh, thank you for waiting patiently while we took care of important housekeeping. So uh, our guest, once again, is Christina Mensick. Uh, so you're the national campaign director for the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. So, uh, well, could you tell us more about this about this organization and and the work they do, and in particular the campaign you're working on? Um, of course. So, the National Council is a Roxbury-based nonprofit that is founded and led by directly impacted women in Massachusetts and nationwide that's working to end the incarceration of women and girls through people-led hyper-local programming, uh, state and national campaigns and coalition work to enact policy change, secure clemency for incarcerated women and bolster really the political power of women and communities impacted by incarceration. Um, I think that last piece is really where the work around voting rights, which has been much of my focus comes in. 
particularly in Massachusetts, we're working to end what's known as the de facto disenfranchisement of incarcerated voters. So that means voters, people behind the wall who are eligible to vote in Massachusetts, that's anyone pre-trial, which is about 47% of our incarcerated population. That means those are folks who have not been convicted of any crime. Um, and then people serving misdemeanors are also eligible to vote in Massachusetts. Um, the reality is that we have never built any kind of system in our Commonwealth to allow those folks to actually exercise their constitutionally protected right to vote. This is a problem that's not unique to Massachusetts. Um, uh, directly impacted people nationwide have been leading efforts to redress jail-based disenfranchisement in places like Colorado, securing really meaningful reform, as well as Illinois, where directly impacted people led the fight um, to make the Cook County Jail have a municipal polling location in the jail. Um, and then the other piece of our, our work around representation and political power uh, includes ending uh, uh, prison gerrymandering and, and ending felony disenfranchisement in the first place. In all of that work in Massachusetts, I'll just add, we've been um, working in lockstep with a statewide coalition um, that's really an inside-outside coalition. And, and I think it's important anytime I talk about this work to lift up that the people who've been leading it start to finish um, are formerly incarcerated people and currently in incarcerated people as well. Oh, okay. Thank you. That was <clears throat> very succinct. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, I'm going to go first and dig in with some questions, but I'm sure Sue and John will have a few as well. Um, all right. So the most basic question I, I had, I was just wondering, so you're talking about people who are, uh, all right. So there are people in Massachusetts in particular who are disenfranchised specifically because, you know, by statute, uh, because they've been convicted of a felony and they are currently serving a sentence for that, correct? Yes, correct. Um, but that was not the case until 20 years ago. Um, felony disenfranchisement is relatively new in, in kind of the scope of Massachusetts history. Really? So before, say, 1990 or 2000, uh, people who, you know, people who were convicted of felony crimes could still vote in prison? Uh, that's correct. Um, the Why did we governor change it? Um, the way I see it, Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm, I don't mean to derail things off of jail-based disenfranchisement, but I think this context is important. Yeah. Um, the short is that incarcerated people for a long time have been working to try to exercise their political voice in the face of uh, having that political voice silenced at every turn. Um, in Norfolk Prison in particular, um, a group of folks uh, uh, in the late 70s and 80s work to organize voter registration drives um, that were, were swatted down at, at different turns. At one point, uh, over 600 men in Norfolk tried to register to vote, and only two of them were successfully registered. Then in the late 90s, a group uh, with some of the same folks worked to form a political action committee. Um, that, I suppose, the governor at the time, Salucci, saw as, as a bridge too far. And what I see as in an effort to punish um, people who had been working to do what, in my perspective, we should always celebrate, which is exercise their political power, do civic engagement. 
Um, he introduced a petition initiative that passed in 2000 and 2001, um, was finalized, which revoked the right to vote just from folks serving felony convictions. Um, as far as I know, that's the only time in Massachusetts history that we have actually taken the right to vote away from a group of people. Um, and it was also a moment in our kind of bigger picture history when other states were actually beginning to move in the other direction. Like Utah was liberalizing um, uh, its laws around voting and incarceration. And, and really the 2000s is what's seen, the beginning of the 2000s is what's seen as kind of the begin of a pivot from tough on crime to, you know, quote, smart on crime. So in many ways, it's a very peculiar moment in Massachusetts history and one that um, people behind the wall have been working to address for a long time since. Oh, that's interesting. I, Paul Salucci, yeah, huh? I don't remember that ballot measure, but I, wow, I'm, I'm sure I hated it at the time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> God. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, so, uh, and just a quick, uh, uh, ancillary question, uh, in the state of Massachusetts, if one is convicted of a federal crime, uh, is one also disenfranchised by, by statute or is it only applied to state, uh, felony convictions? Um, I believe that if it's a federal crime, then, um, then as, if it's a felony, then you are disenfranchised and that's the only case that, you would be convicted of a federal crime. Um, I may need to be fact checked on that. Um, right. I, it just yeah. it, it it just struck me because you know like we have the divided sovereignty of the states and then the federal government and and most people who are in in jails and prisons are actually in state run jails and prisons. But yeah, yeah. So what was the um, question? Right, I'm so sorry. I, my question was uh, people who are in federal prisons, but are Massachusetts residents, Massachusetts voters. If you're, if one is in federal prison for a felony, uh, is one disenfranchised in Massachusetts under this Massachusetts state law? Like it's because it's one thing to say you've been convicted of a felony by the state of Massachusetts. It's another if it's the federal government. And just, I wouldn't be at all surprised, but I was just curious to, to wondered if yeah, how that was working overlap because I don't think there's a federal statute that disenfranchises prisoners. I think it's only state level statutes that do that. I could try to check that out. So, well, right. Anyway, so, so um, that, go ahead, Sue. Sorry. No, can I ask a, a question? Please. So, um, of course I just lost my train of thought cause I was thinking about the federal piece of it, but so do people, if, if I was incarcerated but I hadn't actually been tried yet, and so I have the right to vote right now, even though there's a lot of barriers, which we'll talk about in a little minute. Um, would I vote in my hometown or my last address, or would I vote in the, in the city or town where the jail is? Yeah, or could I choose? A, that's a good question. So there was a 1978 uh, Mass Superior Court ruling that came in result of um, – basically the organizing efforts of folks behind the wall who are working on voter registration and working to exercise their right to vote that uh, basically said that incarcerated voters are presumed to maintain their residence and their address prior to incarceration, but they can overcome that burden. What's unclear for folks is what it actually means to overcome that burden. And I'll point out a lot of, I have found that People generally want to weigh in in their home community um, 
What gets complicated, and this is also a barrier to voting for people who maintain the right to vote, is a lot of people who wind up incarcerated have faced uh, uh, either homelessness or housing instability. So do not oh, have yeah. their address to list as yep. their address for voting purposes. I think the other thing that's important to point out, um, and when you kind of take this a step back and think about what is the point of voting, um, for someone who's incarcerated, the person who you may uh, is most affecting your life. Mo you know, I think of our incarcerated population as our most governed population. And often the elected official doing that governing is a sheriff. And then you add to that the fact, I mean, this is where prison gerrymandering come in. You add to that the fact that districts and municipalities receive funding um, uh, uh, for having um, prisons and jails um, located in them. And then there's this other element, again, with prison gerrymandering, where um, basically the political power of often rural white communities with prisons in them becomes distorted when the incarceration popu incarcerated population is counted in the census in those districts and essentially strips more political power from those typically black and brown and low-income communities that are hyper-policed and over-incarcerated in the first place. This is a question, the question of residency for voting purposes is something that our reality is it's, it's one that can be politically hard. Some people disagree on where, um, where people should vote, which residents they should use. Um, it is really important to a number of our um, coalition partners who are directly impacted that they maintain and have an easier time using their jail as their address for voting purposes, or in some cases in, in their prison as their address for voting purposes. Um, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I oh. just I just wanted to jump in. So um, uh, a, a common distinction, and I think it's true here in Massachusetts in the in the sort of the terminology is people in prison are usually people who've been convicted of a crime, and people in jail are the people who are awaiting trial. So they are, you know innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. And uh, my understanding is a significant number of the people who are currently in jail uh, in Massachusetts are people who are there because they were unable to afford cash bail. Is that correct? Correct. 100%. That's something that I've been trying, you know, and, and in Massachusetts, I think I might have already said this, but pretrial people make up 40, I think it's 47% of our incarcerated population. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's amazing. It's a lot of people. And, and what's, uh, sorry, I don't know if you, if you know this, I'm, I'm just spitballing, but uh, do you know what the typical amount of, of cash bail that, you know, that they're unable to raise is, is there like a, a median or a modal amount? You know, that, I'm that, not. I'm not sure. I know yeah, one me of, either. I'm just there. <laughs> some of my coalition partners have lifted up is that we still have laws in Massachusetts that can mean even once you post bail, you're still not released. Um, How does that work? Sorry, maybe you don't know. But not my just, area of expertise, but things I should know. Dangerousness. <laughs> dangerousness sometimes. Well, then, you know, but like, do they, so there, in other words, the state keeps the cash, but doesn't let you out? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
man, you know, it's Yossi Yankees. Yeah, we we don't miss a trick. <laughs> yeah, we take all your we take all your assets with that confiscatory whatever we talked about before. Oh yeah, so we absolutely. take your you take all your stuff so we can your car and, and your. And, and we shunt people, so we put people in jails and prisons, and that raises the population so of an area. So there are more people who are going to be there. So they're like, like they're going to get more uh, representation in Congress. State representatives, but the people, uh, yeah, or or and the state, but the people who actually will elect those representatives won't be any of the prisoners. So it's not even yes. like you know, it's not even like a three fifths of the of the you know, per person who was incarcerated, it's a hundred percent. So like we're- That is something, um, there's- uh, uh, That's progress for you. Alamine Patterson is one of our coalition leaders and he made that exact point to me this week that it, um, I think for, especially folks who have been disenfranchised, there is so much about felony disenfranchisement um, that- feels like a direct connection to, if not a replication of slavery. When you factor in things like prison labor um, on top of losing the right to vote and then having your representation basically be hauled off for a community that you're told um, you have no, you essentially have no say in. And as with, you know, anything that we're talking about, I think it's important to put this in the context of political inequality and racial inequality in our country. You know, I don't think that fixing felony disenfranchisement or fixing jail-based disenfranchisement or even fixing prison gerrymandering or all three alone are by any means going to end political and racial inequality. But these are pieces of the bigger system that tends to and has a, a you know, goes way back um, to strip political power from black communities and communities of color and overinflate the political voice um, of white, often affluent communities. So, you know, I put again, bringing up the political action committee formed by the folks in Norfolk in the late 90s into that context. And then you want to add in, you know, factors like the role um, uh, that special interests have played in, and groups like ALEC have played in leading to mass incarceration in the first place. Um, it's just, it's really hard to, from my perspective, to be baffled by um, the idea of, of the men who led, men in Norfolk, um, leading an effort to form a political action committee to try and bolster their own um, political voice in, you know, in our democratic process. Yeah. And you mentioned, Alec, that's the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is basically a uh, uh, a conservative business pressure group that uh, tries to uh, uh, put out. Those are my people. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Come get you your people. Get Sue, with please. your people, Sue. I... <laughs> no, no, I don't want to go there. Thank you. I don't blame you. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Christina, we're approaching our our halfway break here in the show, and I want to mention, you know, that we are once again the fun drive. But could you just tell me what's the what are sort of the numbers here in Massachusetts? How many people who are being disenfranchised in this, both overtly and in this backdoor method, are we talking about altogether? Yeah. Um, so. Um, first, I'm going to answer that question by not answering it, which is to say that part of the bill that we're working on right now has these completely basic common sense requirements like 
a requirement that sheriffs um, and the DOC can provide the numbers that you're asking for. Oh, so um, no, we don't, don't know those them. numbers. We have, I mean, our them. general estimates is, it, estimate is that between, uh, in normal years, our, our incarcerated population decreased somewhat significantly this year, if only on a temporary basis because of COVID. Normal years, our estimates is, estimate is that between seven and 9,000 people um, are likely impacted just by jail-based disenfranchisement in Massachusetts. Um, in 2018, uh, uh, basically legislation was passed that required, share, required sheriffs in the DOC um, to basically create what to me is the most common sense type of database so that we can understand who in Massachusetts, we already you know, generally know, um, but more, have a more accurate understanding of who is um, impacted by incarceration more broadly. Um, but and things that I can't answer because according to sheriffs and the DOC, this data does not exist. I can't tell you exactly how many eligible incarcerated voters were unable to participate um, in, in uh, the 2020 elections. And, you know, one of the things that that meant, I had uh, represent, I had the DOC and I had sheriffs tell me that they could not disaggregate those individuals serving felony convictions from those serving misdemeanors. So essentially there was nothing that we or anyone could do to try and reach those eligible voters who were serving misdemeanors. Um, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Wait, hold, hold on. Uh, <laughs> okay. They they were saying that the people in prison, there are people that are serving felonies, there are people serving misdemeanors, and they did not, they were not able to say, they, they can't, can't tell, tell the, the difference. difference. Is that what they were saying? Yes, that's right. Isn't there like a whole system set up so you know like when to let people <laughs> out for things? You know, that's, and look, the reality is we have no power over sheriffs in Massachusetts. You know, what we've been able to do also, last point on the data, you know, what we're trying to do is look at, we have kind of outdated numbers that, you know, I know 10 years ago, there were 22,000 people incarcerated, about 9,000 in local jails, about 9,000 in state prisons. So we basically have been doing some figuring to try and get our own estimates with really without any help. Um, the other point is that we have really no, you know, I shouldn't, I'm, I'm a movement organizer. I shouldn't say that we don't have power over elected officials, um, but we have very little power. Sheriffs operate, I think the better way of saying it is sheriffs operate generally with impunity. Um, I wow. had sheriffs tell me to my face, um, Basically, I, you know, when we're trying to figure out what people are doing to ensure eligible people could vote, um, I had sheriffs say, yeah, yeah, at least two sheriffs specifically said, yes, uh, I guess an eligible voter could access an absentee ballot application if they hand wrote me a letter requesting an absentee ballot application. You know, right. if that isn't a <laughs> voter suppression law, non-law voter suppression tactic practice. Um, I just, I give that example, um, you know, part, part of the reason is because sheriffs are operate on counties, but we don't have county government. Um, I yeah, think part I of the that. reason this is a civics thing is, is, 
you know, as with attorney generals, I think there's just another kind of awakening and understanding of the role that sheriffs and AGs um, have, uh, you know, and so are important races to vote in. Anyway, sorry. I'm No, no, Ms. Bensick, we're going to take our our half hour break here in the show. Like, we're going to keep talking about this when we come back, because also like the the problems with county government is definitely something that I think we've talked about before in this show. Sue, you had something you want to say? Yeah, just a quick conservative thought. So that is the problem with regionalization, because no one is accountable when you have these county type governments. So I'll just put that out there. That's my conservative thought for the night. All right. Anyway, well, we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, once again, we are doing the fun drive here for Valley Free Radio. Uh, so, uh, please do, uh, help support this nonprofit, all volunteer community-based radio station, which gives you programs like this. Um, and you can do that, uh, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, uh, and click on the PayPal page there, uh, uh, the link there and donate to the station, uh, any amount you care to do. Uh, you can specify what show you're supporting, uh, www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Uh, we are 501c3, so it's entirely tax deductible. So www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Please do click. Please do help us stay on the air. And now we're going to play some PSAs, promos, and station IDs, and we'll be back with more civil politics on Valley Free Radio in just a couple of minutes. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Today, community broadcasting is more important than ever. Corporate interests affect what music we hear on commercial radio, and real news and opinion take a backseat to ratings and profits. Valley Free Radio is owned by its members, operated by volunteers, its programming created by your friends and neighbors, and it's wholly supported by the community. Please consider going to www.valleyfreeradio.org donate to support free speech in the Pioneer Valley. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic host of OK Asia, I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists, combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. This is Stacy from Evidence-Based Radio, Science and Skepticism with a Leftist Feminist Perspective, Fridays from 6 to 7 p.m. 
Valley Free Radio has allowed me to answer the question, do all leftists hate vaccines and GMOs? It also broadcasts a variety of shows from underrepresented people who don't have a home in commercial radio. I hope you can help support this great station with a donation. Every little bit helps. VFR is a community-based radio station and relies on community support. Oh, and the answer is no. And we're back with Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow, and uh, John Roberts and Sue Timberlake and I are still uh, talking with Christina Mensick of the National uh, uh, Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls uh, about voting rights and the work they're doing here in Massachusetts. And... Uh, there's a lot on the table, but before we do that, I do have to mention we are trying to keep uh, Valley Free Radio on the air. Uh, this isn't an emergency fund drive. It's our regular fund drive. But, you know, every dollar you give is going to help us keep the lights on and uh, 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 the microphones clean and uh, all that other stuff. So um, www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. It's the link there. We're a tax deductible uh, donation, nonprofit, uh, all volunteer community radio station, www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Please go there and help us keep doing what we do. And if you, if you don't like civil politics, well, shame on you, but you know, it helps you, you, you you're, you're going to keep, uh, evidence-based and farm to fork and warm heart of Africa and subculture and okay Asia and all the other shows that Argentinian we have. Argentinian tango. Argentinian tango. Oh, I, I think actually good. we've wrapped that up actually. But Oh, have we? I think that I think I don't think we have that show anymore, unfortunately. I think she moved away. You know. Um but anywho, uh yes. So uh slash donate. So um Christina Mensick, uh, National Campaign Director from uh, oh, the, um, hold yes. on, uh, questions answering questions from the previous uh, half. Um, oh, first, look who's all competent <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's rare. So first, um, the um, the average bail. I uh, I found the Massachusetts Bail Fund uh, organization that uh, pays for um, bail for. Uh, for people that can't pay for themselves, um, they they say their average they post an average of four hundred fifty dollars for bail in Massachusetts, uh, and that can go as low as twenty five dollars. So there are some bail some some people do bail for like twenty five bucks, and they might not be able to pay for it. That means they'll be in holding. Excellent stuff. Um, the other the other thing was uh, does do, does being a federal prisoner affect your voting rights depending on the state? And uh, from what I've determined, the state the state um, controls how people vote um, and when and it like voting occurs at the state level. So federal prison status has nothing to do with their with their voting status it all has to do with where which state they're housed in well uh unless the state decides to say you know if you're convicted of a federal crime then you can't vote or maybe you can't yeah. well that's still the um right the state it's, saying that right okay thank you for clarifying that john right <clears throat> so uh uh, uh Ms. Mensick, um or should i call you christina do you care 
Okay, right. Sorry, Christina. Um, so, Christina, uh, you are working on uh, lobbying the state of Massachusetts to uh, make some changes to our, uh, well, our, our, our defective and, uh, well, I'll say it, unjust policies. <laughs> I know you probably have to be a bit more temperate since you're <laughs> representing an organization and so forth, but... Um, yeah, this is. Uh, I didn't realize just how how bad this was. This is shocking, and it's certainly, um, uh, as Sue said, uh, you know, it's a great example of how um, the 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 county system, which I, I had thought I could swear we abolished in this state a few years ago, but um, some some county government parts, yeah, but not the sheriffs and not yeah. other pieces. Well, and, and some of the. Um, Planning commissions and stuff are are regional yeah. too, and it's neither fish nor fowl. It's not a local town government, you know, where it's like, oh yeah, you know. I mean, you know, I know who the mayor of East Hampton is. You know, I we've had Nicole on the show, but uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, it's not a state office where it's like, okay, well, I know I go to Boston or whatever. Like, I honestly couldn't tell you who the county sheriff is that handles. Uh, East Hampton or Northampton or Holyoke. Is it Kochi? I think it's Kochi. If you say so. I honestly don't know. <laughs> and I certainly have no idea uh, uh, what uh, what the sheriff does or how the sheriff handles people who wish to vote while they are, uh, you know, held at the Hampshire County House of Corrections or any other uh, jail in the state. So, so tell us more about the work you're doing. There are a couple of bills uh, in the state house in Boston that you're uh, working on. I think yes. So, go, yeah. so fill so, us in. Awesome. So I am part of a coalition that has been working on jail-based voting for uh, at this point. Many of our coalition partners have been doing it for years independently um, in different part of the states, whether in Hamden. Uh, or Hampshire, who uh, I realize it's Kayleen, not Kochi. I get them confused. Oh, it's Kayleen. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Kayleen? Yeah, yeah. Kayleen. He got reelected. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have folks who, like uh, Pastor Hobbs is, is the lead in Suffolk County, who's been going into the Suffolk County Jail and Nashua Street, basically all working to try and get uh, folks access to absentee ballot applications. What all of our coalition partners have found in past years is that that kind of effort winds up being pretty, like, you know, you reach really a drop in the bucket. Maybe you get seven people who happen to come in um, to your, you know, your voter edge table, wherever it's set up. Um, the short is this year, because of COVID, we had no access at all. Um, we had really no way um, to again, hold sheriffs accountable at all. And I think that the realities of the COVID pandemic for incarcerated people in Massachusetts only underscored the importance of protecting voting rights. We had folks who were completely vulnerable. We know that COVID completely, um, uh, you know, affected incarcerated populations at something like, you know, three times the level, nearly half of incarcerated people at, uh, uh, had, COVID at some time in Massachusetts or at some time over the course of the past year. Now we have uh, officers uh, who won't get vaccinated. Anyway, I'm getting kind of derailed. We came together at the end of the fall 
and agreed that we just had to focus on a legislative solution because the job of facilitating voting behind the wall can't be the job of volunteers. So we have followed the leadership of, of the African-American Coalition Committee that's based in, or that's in Norfolk Prison. Um, we have built on legislation they drafted before um, and uh, drafted and are supporting a bill filed by Senator Adam Hines and representatives Liz Miranda and China Tyler that tries to take a systemic approach to jail-based disenfranchisement. Um, if it's helpful, I can back up and, and give kind of what I see as the four main buckets of things that encompass jail-based disenfranchisement. Um, would that be helpful? Yeah, well, should, it would help me. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, if it would help Mike, then yes. <laughs> yeah. Me too, me too. I should yes too. <laughs> Cool. Um, so I know I might have already touched on this a little bit, but I see really the first category is what I think of as burdens and requirements. The short is there's no requirement on sheriffs to do anything at all. Um, pretty much Massachusetts, the Constitution and general law says who has the right to vote, but doesn't say anything about who's responsible to do what to make sure those folks behind the wall can actually vote. Um, so our bill has provisions that require sheriffs to do what I think of as really the basics, provide folks with absentee ballot applications, materials on candidates, a way to return their application and ballot in a timely manner. There are a lot of issues with jail mail delays. Um, we have a requirement that sheriffs provide folks with, you know, hand or written down the, the address that the jail has on file for them um, so that they can decide whether that's the address they want to use as theirs for voting purposes. Well, all of this does that will be a big step forward is it places some kind of legal burden on sheriffs to do something. The next category um, of jail-based disenfranchisement and the kind of things we try and address is really around registration and residency. We take um, what our, you know, the Massachusetts general law and superior court says that there's this presumption that you maintain your previous address for voting purposes, but you can overcome it. We offer some language to help, uh, help folks figure out what might, basically we say that as long as your absentee ballot application is sent from a jail, then that is evidence that that jail is your address for voting purposes. Um, um, we do a few other things to try and reduce the likelihood that folks have their absentee ballot applications rejected, which I'll point out that for those very few uh, voters who are incarcerated who have been able to access ballot applications, many of them, uh, if not most, have their application rejected. And often I'll point out in 2018 in Franklin County, um, there was a group of folks who reject, who requested absentee ballots um, three weeks before the election and then four days before election day found out that their absentee ballot applications had been rejected. And that is not enough time when you're incarcerated um, to request a new one or try and resolve that issue. That sort of leads to number three. There's no option for folks on election day, folks who've been detained shortly before election day or who find themselves with a rejected absentee ballot application. And then the last thing is the issue about data and reporting. We have no way to access meaningful data on how many people have tried to vote, how many people are eligible to vote in the first place. Um, and so then, you know, in some ways it puts us as advocates in a bind when legislators ask us, you know, well, how many people are really affected by this anyway? Um, 
So anyway, our bill approaches all of those different things with various requirements on elections officials, sheriffs, the Secretary of Commonwealth. And then finally, um, really the gold standard is that incarcerated people would have a municipal polling place to vote at in their jail on election day. Because on top of still having sheriffs and quasi-county government, we run elections on the municipal level, basically, um, facilitating election day voting is really difficult with an actual polling place. So our bill strikes a compromise with elections officials and it says that in Suffolk County, Worcester County um, and Middlesex or counties with 800,000 people or more, um, those county jails have to provide at least one municipal polling location on the last day of early voting. So we hope that combined with um, allowing sheriffs to make use of drop boxes to facilitate the return of ballots will really catch also those folks who are who are incarcerated shortly before an election. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the overview of the issues of jail-based disenfranchisement and the things that we try and address in our bill. Um, and all of this legislation is moving, I think, right now because the Joint Committee on Election Laws is considering fall reforms um, that were passed uh, I worked on in my previous role reforms that brought mail-in voting, expanded early voting and others so that folks could vote during COVID. The legislature is considering whether to make those permanent um, and then just address other barriers to participation. So anyway, I'll, I'll maybe stop there. I need to cut myself <laughs> off. <laughs> so, the, so the compromise was that um, they, they would have ac uh, increased access to uh, drop boxes and early voting uh, through absentee and also setting up polling places or polling stations before election day and just not on election day. Is that correct? Yeah. The gold standard would be what um, Illinois just did in Cook County, where in Cook County, um, most people incarcerated in the Cook County jail are folks from Chicago. Um, and the Cook County elections are administered. Basically, there's one office that administers Chicago, another office that administers all of the other municipalities in Cook County. So to do elections in the Cook County jail, you need two municipal polling locations. If we held election day voting in the Middlesex County jail or any of them, um, you would need a different polling location for any of the various municipalities where someone could hypothetically be incarcerated from. I think a good example. Oh yeah. And then add to that, you know, a place like Framingham uh, has precincts. So you would need precinct polling locations. In right. Boston, you would need precinct polling locations. So even though our gold standard is anyone on election day has a, has a place to vote, um, we felt like the last day of early voting, the Friday before election day was sort of a, a compromise that also, you know, with absentee voting and drop boxes that should reach a whole lot of people. I think we feel though that there's um, just a, like basic civics value to having an actual polling location for eligible voters, um, which is why, you know, that really is the gold standard. Um, uh, not only is it more accessible, but it just reinforces the whole thing that voting is supposed to be about, which is that, you know, you are um, a valued citizen participating in our democracy, you know, through the tradition of um, voting at a polling location. So um, the 
so I was, I'm just wondering, uh, with, with the absentee voting, with the in-person, uh, voting for the last day, is there any provisions for, uh, people to get help, uh, like assistance with, with voting? They might be illiterate. They might not understand what is, uh, what the ballot is. Is there any provisions for that? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. One, there's a requirement that the Secretary of Commonwealth provide um, materials that incarcerated folks might need to cast an informed ballot. Um, in Massachusetts, our Secretary of Commonwealth issues his, I think of it as the Red Book. Each I love person. the Red Book. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> All we're saying is incarcerated folks need to have the Red Book too. Um, our bill also says that sheriffs are required to appoint a staffer to help facilitate voting. And, um, you know, the other thing, and that means, you know, being the person to answer questions, as it is right now in some jails, sometimes a jail librarian um, might have absentee ballot applications and be the person to answer those questions. We think streamlining some of that is important. But the thing is that um, obviously, um, uh, or maybe not obviously, we still wanted to encourage and think it's really important that sheriffs bring in and partner with outside volunteers and organizations who are going to be the trusted messenger who can talk to people about the importance of voting, can answer questions. Um, how that operates, you know, within our coalition, we have worked with folks who do uh, recovery programs in jail, educational programs. Um, support groups. Um, in one county, we had uh, uh, someone who teaches yoga in the county jail who wasn't able to get in this last year because of COVID. Um, but people, folks like those are people not only who our coalition will continue to work with, um, but who we, we wanted to encourage sheriffs to enlist the support of as well, um, to come in as that trusted messenger, the outside voice, um, so we have a, a provision that, you know, we can't, we can't, couldn't really mandate that, but that encourages sheriffs to um, publicize their plans for voting, including um, plans for partnerships with um, those outside partners and trusted messengers. So how would we, as people who are, you know, interested in, you know, democracy and people actually getting to have their voices be heard, Crazy. how yeah, how stuff. could how could we help your organization? How can we help do this work? Yeah, so right now um, we need people to be writing their legislators. I know I feel like anytime you turn on the radio or talk to an activist, they're going to tell you that now is urgent and they need to call their legislator right now. Um, our reality is the election loss committee is reviewing this bill in real time. Um, it really matters that um, that people contact their legislator. Um, one way to do that and one way to follow our work and get notifications about phone banks, which we're, we ran one today, we're running one next Thursday, um, they'll be at least once a week for most of the summer, um, is to go to safeelectionsma.org slash join dem behind bars. I know that's kind of a long link, um, but that's really, you know, if you sign up for our e-list, I promise I'm the one who manages the e-list. I'm not going to spam anyone with emails. 
I'll just notify you about ways to get involved. And then I'll also shout out that we, um, at the first meeting, we meet as a coalition weekly, our first meeting of each month, uh, Mondays at five o'clock, uh, is an open meeting, just if folks wanna learn more about what we're up to, the work that we have ahead, um, uh, we welcome newcomers. And so again, the best way to, to find out about all of that, phone bank opportunities, tools for writing your legislator is to go to safeelectionsma.org slash join Dem Behind Bars. And all of that information and as much information as uh, as as we can have is going to be on the website, civilpoliticsradio.com. And if you're listening on a podcast, it will be in the show notes. So definitely take a look at those click on these links um the uh phone banking is is really important and can be very fun uh (laughs) i just want to mention the reason why we have uh christina on the show is because i actually received a call from uh the phone bank a couple thursdays ago really wonderful people on on the other side of the line i cannot say enough very informative very welcoming and i said hold on can i talk to someone on the radio uh so and they gave me uh your information so if you are able to uh phone bank then um it is a great experience especially if you have experience talking to to people your customer service or something like that it's a great way to um, expand your horizons and learn about really important things so um, those links will be in the uh, in the description in on the website when this posts on Monday um, check it out see if there's anything that you can do um, and the information about the two bills the house and the senate bill are also going to be there as well yep <clears throat> and your organization the uh uh, National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls uh, has their has a website which is uh, quite simply uh, uh, www.nationalcouncil.us, I believe, and people can find out more about you and the work you do there as well, right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. Uh, so, Sue, genre, we are approaching the end of the thing, and we do have to mention our uh, fund drive. But before I I I, I go launching into that, uh, any any final words or thoughts or questions? <laughs> no grenades. No, I'm good. I'm good. Very interesting. Oh my Very, god. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> really? I, I will. Uh, well, I'll save it for next week. <laughs> oh no. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, I was so happy, and then. Da- dashed my dreams dashed a couple before um i just want to uh thank you for um putting light on this subject and uh and coming on the show um this is a vitally important subject especially when we're talking about uh the the county system how uh we can hold sheriffs accountable for uh what they do one of the things is to you know vote for sheriff and vote uh and try to vote sheriffs in that um will be beneficial for our entire community and if prisoners can vote then they might have something to say about that because they have firsthand experience <laughs> so uh that i it's this is something that we we really need to shine a light on more um, so it's really great that we were able to get so much information. Those links in the description. Click on them. And 
I think we all agree that, uh, you know, our society is improved when everybody gets a say and not just, you know, you know, country club wasp types like me. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, Mike. (laughs) I I don't compare myself to him. That's a, that seems a bit immodest even for me. Wrap it up. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so uh, thank you all for listening to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio. Uh, thank you to Christina Mensik uh, from the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls for joining us and uh, telling us about this super important issue. Um, Valley Free Radio is a community station. It's uh, all, all run by its members. We're all volunteers. We're a nonprofit community uh, organization, and uh, we need your support. So please do donate to us. Uh, uh, www.valleyfreeradio.org is the website to go to there. Um, uh, the donate page is right off the front of the website, and you can use PayPal and make a tax-deductible contribution. www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And coming up next, we've got Subculture, uh, followed by uh, Table of Contents at 10, and then DJ Panic will take you to OK Asia starting at midnight. So that's a whole range of good stuff. Uh, We've got a repeat broadcast of Civil Politics uh, coming next uh, Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, the podcast of the show is going to be shunted out to the various services probably in the wee hours of Monday morning. Shunted? I don't know. Picking (laughs) verbs, man. It's such a... Anyway, sorry. I'm wrapping it up. Come on, be responsible. (laughs) Okay, well, that'll do it for uh, Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio. Uh, www.valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Please do help us stay on the air. And, Civil Politics uh, that's is a member of the Thanks Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.